Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Pray with me. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. As we uh, do almost every Sunday, we will soon recite the Apostles' Creed. Now, being the new guy, that's one of my favorite practices in the worship of this church. It's a representative body of the core beliefs, the, the truest realities, the essentials of the faith. And we say them over and over and over again. And I have to tell you, I've been really impressed because most of you have it memorized. Being the new guy, I don't. And I can see judgment in some of your eyes every Sunday when I stand up front and have to say it into a microphone. I will catch up. I think it's an incredible gift to the church universal that we have the creed of the apostles handed down from generation to generation. But I wonder, have you ever considered the only human names mentioned in the creed besides that of Jesus Christ? Born of the Virgin Mary. She's famous. We'll soon know that. Advent's coming. She's famous. She's the mother of the Son of God. She had incredible faith. Scripture says that she treasured up in her heart the difficult realities that God had shown her would come to pass. Teenage virgin gives birth to God-man. Sounds like a tabloid. For her, it wasn't just a difficult reality. It almost cost her her life. And she fled home not only to save hers, but also to save his. And so it makes sense that she's memorialized throughout the ages, not just because of who she is, but also the role she played. She was the mother of the Christ, of Jesus. But there's another name in our creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He's not famous, he's infamous. He's the Roman governor in this passage who, whether it was because of cowardice or indifference, gave Jesus over to a raucous crowd. And in so doing, he opened the door for Jesus' suffering and death. Why would we memorialize such a person throughout the ages? But I want to tell you is perhaps it's not just because of who Pilate is, but what he represents that also matters. 
Pilate represents Caesar in Rome, the most powerful king and kingdom in the days of Jesus and in the years of the early church. And as governor of Judea, Pilate's primary job was to represent and implement Roman rule, which he did expeditiously, brutally, viciously, suppressing any kind of uprising, particularly Jewish rebellions. And history shows he would also sometimes incite rebellions just to crush them viciously. And he and his rule were representative of Rome. It was ruthless. It was oppressive. It's estimated and sometimes debated that the Roman Empire took almost 8 million lives during its multi-century dominance. And that somewhere around 2 million of those were Jews and Christians alone. The Roman historian Tacitus recorded a dialogue that he held with a foreign general in his annals. And when speaking of the Roman Empire, the general spoke of it this way. Listen. These plunderers of the world, the Romans... After exhausting the land by their devastations, they're rifling the ocean. So after they have conquered all the land, they're now trying to conquer the deep. Stimulated by greed, if their enemy is rich. By ambition, if their enemy is poor. Unsatiated by the east and by the west, they are the only people who behold wealth and poverty the same. With equal passion, they lust for dominion of both. To ravage, to slaughter to seize, to take, and they call this venture empire. Where they make a desert, they call it peace. To ravage, to slaughter, to seize, to take. This is generally representative of all the earthly kings and kingdoms and their thirst for power and for dominance. They take life in order to expand their own. But there's also a truth that might be harder to hear. Pilate also represents us. You see, he had a king Caesar in a kingdom Judea, and he was living for it, and he longed to be promoted in it. He wanted to influence and rule his own little kingdom on his own little parcel of the earth. And so do we, don't we? We all have a kingdom that we're living for. And no matter how much our culture might trumpet self-expression, self-individualism, self-sovereignty as human ideals, no man or woman was ever intended to be a rule unto him or herself. God made you in his image to bear it with joy and with dignity and to expand his kingdom until his glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is your self-expression. And it is not your sovereignty. And so I wonder, even today, made in the image of God, do we bear it well? You know, every week we pray, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so often we don't live that way, do we? We have pseudo-kings and temporal kingdoms. What is your king and what is your kingdom? Your king could be an actual person. It could be yourself or another, but it could also just be a controlling ambition or desire. 
one that rules you, one that orients you, one that drives you, one that demands your time and attention, and often receives both first. You know, working in the church with men, a lot of times you have two pseudo-kings of work and money. And some men actually don't care about money that much. It's work. That's where they want to be promoted. That's where they find their sufficiency. That's where they get their validation. But then there's others who treat money as their pseudo-king. And work is a means to that end. And I'm telling you, church, what I've seen time and time and time again in both instances, when there's a king that should never be, is that you have a well-dressed family that's empty inside. And in some form or fashion, you're going to hear those dreaded words from spouse or child. I don't want your money. They want your presence. They want your guidance. They want your care. They want your time. And that's what happens when we enthrone the wrong king. We end up with a kingdom that we never thought would be. And typically, we struggle to identify these pseudo-kings, don't we? This is how it typically plays out. A spouse or a good friend, someone who's willing to speak the truth, says, I think your priorities are a little out of whack. And if our initial response is defensive, do you know why? We've got a problem. We're defending our kingdom. We have a pseudo-king. And so our our pseudo-kings show their faces when they are threatened or when they fail us altogether. Otherwise, we typically are very blind to it. But they are pseudo-kings nonetheless. And so this passage is begging that question that I keep repeating. Who or what is your king? And keep that in mind. Because this back and forth between Pilate and Jesus is not just an inquisition of Jesus by Pilate. It's representative of two kings and two kingdoms. Pilate representing the earthly kings and kingdoms and our feudal pursuits as well. And Jesus representing a kingship and a kingdom that's of a wholly different kind. And so in Pilate's questions, we're going to see one, that Jesus Christ is king. And then in Jesus' responses, we're going to see that his kingdom, juxtaposed to earthly kings and kingdoms, is redemptive in nature. So first, the questions, Jesus Christ is king. Draw your attention back to the passage in your bulletin, verse 33 and 37. Pilate basically asks the exact same question with two different emphases. Verse 33 says, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And then in verse 37 later, Pilate says the exact same question, just a little differently. Pilate says to Jesus, So you are a king. And so what this is showing us is Pilate in the beginning is saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He's doubting Jesus' kingship. The emphasis is on you. And the sentence in the Greek, you comes first. Pilate has had revolutionary after revolutionary presented in front of him in his court. Jesus does not look like one of them. He's quiet, almost silent. He's only speaking when spoken to. He is beaten and bruised. He's not pronouncing or proving his authority. He's not angry like he's leading an uprising. He is so confusing to Pilate. You are a king? 
He had no form or majesty that he would be esteemed. He was stricken, smitten by men. And so Pilate's doubting the charges that have been brought against Jesus from the Jewish council that he's the king of the Jews. And Jesus responds and says, is this your question or is this their question? Because each deserves a different response. In great wisdom, what he's saying is, I pose no political threat to Rome. If you are asking, then no, I am not the king of this kingdom. But if those who sent me to you are asking, then yes, I am a king. And then the last question, Pilate repeats himself and says, so you are a king. Basileus, the word for king comes first, no longer the pronoun. And Pilate here is not doubting his kingship, he's dismissing it altogether. Okay, this is much like if I present to my kids that I'm a basketball player. You are a basketball player? 5'11", you have a bad knee, you can't jump more than seven inches, and we've never seen you shoot a basketball. You are a basketball player? You're certainly something. That's more the, the temperament of what this question is saying. Okay? He's saying, you are a king? And Jesus says, for this purpose I was born. He declares his authority, not just distinguishes it. And he says, I am a king, but it is of a wholly different kind. And so Jesus here is telling Pilate he is both wrong and right. Jesus is simultaneously no threat to Rome and yet the ultimate threat to every king and every kingdom on earth. And this back and forth dialogue, rather than focus on the authority of Pilate and Rome, which is what happened every single time a revolutionary came to court to incite fear of the power and ruthlessness of Rome, But that's not what happens here. The entire dialogue is about the authority of Jesus. His authority is the focus. And you know what? Throughout his life, it's always been that way. Every time opponents came to him, they were amazed at his authority. And it's because he's the promised king. The Old Testament is littered with messianic promises of an anointed one, a Messiah. Children, the word Messiah means anointed one. You can remind your parents later today. Okay, and it was a a king who would rule on earth, but whose authority would be divine. We say it a bit differently. A king whose authority is divine in origin, but earthly in termination. And that was qualitatively central to the messianic promises Our Old Testament passage, one you'll hear during Advent, highlights this reality. It's Isaiah 9. Listen. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Children, does that sound like Christmas? And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This this promised king will be born to earth as a male child, as a son, in human form. But he is, by every title mentioned, designated as divine. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. 
Throughout Scripture, these titles are reserved for God alone, and they signify divine rule and divine reign. They are never used about a man. That's why they're capitalized in your bulletin and in your Bibles. Okay, these titles can be said of no earthly ruler or earthly king. They are reserved for God alone, no matter how magnificent the earthly king may or may not have been. Just take everlasting father, everlasting. Caesar falls. Alexander falls. Babylon, Assyria, their empires are overthrown. But this promised king or kingdom, it said, of the increase of his rule and peace, there will be no end. And so according to this promise, the king is born to earth, but he's not quite of the earth, is he? And according to this promise, the king is in the world, but he certainly is not of the world or from the world. He's strange. He's very strange. A reign that's divine in origin and earthly in termination, which demands that this promised king must be a king from God, born of man, ruling on earth. Friends, only a God-man would do. Jesus Christ is the promised king, 100% God and 100% man. As John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel, that God put on flesh and dwelt among us. And so Jesus indirectly and directly is revealing to Pilate and to us, he is indeed a king and he does have a kingdom. But in his responses, he shows that his kingdom is of a wholly different kind. His kingdom is redemptive. Look back at the passage, verses 36 and 37. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not political. It's not a threat to Rome. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. There's no fighting, nothing volatile. There's no uprising. And then he says, you say that I am a king. And for that very purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to this truth. He's a king of a different kind. Quickly, I want to speak to how different exactly it is. Unlike Rome and the kings and kingdoms of this world, his kingdom is not characterized by power, but by meekness. Okay, and now meekness is not the absence of strength or power. It's the restraint of it. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus is in a garden and soldiers come to arrest him and his followers come armed. And Jesus says, put your swords in their sheaths. Do you not know that at any moment, I could call 12 legions of angel armies to come to my aid. It wasn't a lack of authority that had him handed over. It was meekness. He was restraining his strength and willingly giving himself up. And so that's why when Jesus was also walking on the earth and he spoke of the kingdom of God, he said, it's like a little mustard seed. So small so invisible, so seemingly insignificant, but full of potential and power that will be revealed in due time. And when it is fully grown, it will provide shelter to every living thing that will find itself underneath it. Because that's what meekness is. It's not the absence of power. It's the restraining of it. And the kingdom of God is growing, but it's power not yet fully revealed. Unlike Rome, 
Jesus' kingdom is not characterized by oppression, but by liberation. Okay, the motive and goal of his kingdom is not to make captives out of freed people. It's to make freed people out of captives. And that's why when Jesus walked the earth, he would say this, the kingdom of God has come near, and the kingdom of God is upon you. And most often do you know when he would say that? When he was in the act of exercising demons from someone who had suffered their whole life. Or when he was in the act of healing a lame man who could never walk. His power reaches into oppression and sets people free. It doesn't reach into freedom and make them oppressed. Wholly different from the kings and kingdoms of the earth. He liberates the captives. And his kingdom is not characterized like Rome and other kings and kingdoms of the earth by vengeance. Instead, it's mercy and grace. Friends, in the kingdom of God, justice is delayed, but it is never forgotten. But the reason it is delayed is to open the door for mercy and grace. And that's why when Jesus walked to the earth and he spoke of the kingdom of God, he said, it's like a master who had a servant that owed 10,000 talents. That's 2,500 generations worth of debt. Insurmountable, unpayable. And do you know what that master did? In mercy, he did not give him what he deserves. And in grace, he paid the debt himself. That's what the kingdom's like. It doesn't forget justice. It just delays it to make room for mercy and grace. And with you and me as sinners, there's no better news than delayed justice that we might be shown mercy and grace. And unlike Rome, his kingdom is not characterized by violence. This is where we'll end today. But by sacrifice. Our epistolary reading helps us here. In Revelation 1, it says this. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Listen to this. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. Christ the king does not take your life that he might expand and extend his own. Christ the king gives his life in order to expand and extend yours. His kingdom is one of self-sacrificial love. He's a sacrificial king. And he didn't lay claim to divine rights, but he emptied himself. Before he was ever rightfully crowned, he first had to go through the cross. The cross preceded his crown. That was our cross. It was our cross. It wasn't his. And God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He laid down his life so that we might take up ours. This is Christ the king in the nature of his kingdom. Friends, why enthrone another? Meekness. 
liberation, mercy and grace, sacrificial love. Why enthrone another? And so I have to close where I started. Is Christ your king? Sadly, my experience in the church is that most people treat him like a consultant, not a king. They are open and welcome even to his words and his advice in the nooks, in the corners, in the crevices of their lives. But like Pilate, they listen to his input and dismiss his authority. Let his kingdom come. Let his will be done in your life as it is in heaven. Is Christ your king? Does your life look anything like his kingdom? Not powerful, but meek. Not oppressive, but liberating. Not vengeful, but full of mercy and grace. Not violent or overbearing, but sacrificial. Let his kingdom come and let his will be done in your life as it is in heaven. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may we find ourselves more and more and more willing to bend the knee to your kingship, to see your rule and reign as something glorious and even delightful. We honor and magnify you at this table today, our sacrificial king. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.